Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Matt Giroux. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield University in McMinnville. It's April 4th, 2023. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and the first question to get you started is why wine? Hmm. You start with the big question. Exactly. Um, maybe one way to answer that is to talk about how I got into wine. Uh, I was a Blitz beer drinker and uh, all through college. And uh, after, after college, um, at some point, a friend of mine uh, and his partner invited me over to uh, Sunday dinner. And uh, we started to make that a habit. And w- not because we wanted to, but because we thought we should, we well, I guess we're supposed to have wine, right? <laughs> so we started drinking some wine. But then we discovered Liner and Elson, which is a, uh, it's a, uh, a wine shop uh, started by Bob Liner and Matt Elson. And uh, that what was so amazing about that shop was its totally unpretentious um, uh, approach to wine. They sold super high-end wines, but they also sold accessible wines. And they were smart about it, and they weren't uh, they didn't sort of dumb it down artificially. And so we just, we, they kind of, we kind of got sucked up into their thing. And so we, we got like a $10 bottle of wine. And we thought that was pretty good. And then we're like, oh, $12.50. And, uh, and so, so that, you know, part of it, a lot of it was my introduction was not the way, well, I guess, I mean, I, preceding that, um, I think I had an association with the wine industry that probably most people have as uh, emblematic of luxury and class and uh, sophistication and education. The wine industry's tried very hard to uh, to you know work on that branding for years, and so that essentially. Um, you know, made me not really interested in trying it because that's not who I identify as. So Liner and Elson um, kind of broke through that uh, and kind of, you know, cleared away a lot of that stuff to focus on the thing itself. And um, so you have two things going on there. Number one is kind of clearing away the bullshit uh, and focusing on like what a wine does and where it can take you. Uh, the story that comes in every bottle of wine of where it was made, who made it, um, the specific, um, you know, the, the details of the weather and the landscape and the culture that all translate into that wine. And Liner and Nelson are really good about, um, you know, kind of getting that, number one. And number two was it became a habit to drink it with these two friends of mine. So there was gathering around a table and, and you know, the conversation that would come from that. And so, you know, those two things are really essential uh, anyway to me uh, that about 
why wine is, is uh, wonderful. And then ultimately, um, you know, our, our tastes started to get more and more expensive. But there was, a, there was an upper limit. <laughs> but we were like, ooh, 1750. Uh, and of course, it's gone to be a lot more expensive since then. But, uh, but you know, that back then, this was in the middle 90s, you know, there's a whole world of wine uh, that you could explore with that budget. And so, um, you know, we started to pay more and more attention to that. I started to do more thinking about it. And then a job at Willamette Week came up. Willamette Week is an independent uh, newspaper based in Portland um, to do a wine column. And so I pitched it with a good friend of mine, James McQuillan, who uh, just passed away recently, but he uh, ultimately became an arts and culture assistant editor at Willamette Week. But at that time, he was just a writer just like me. And so we started a wine column uh, at Willamette Week. And that lasted approximately 95 to just into the millennium. So, so the call, we were more interested in the people and the stories of wine than in tasting notes. Um, we did do tasting notes, but uh, ultimately the, you know, it tastes like cherries. Okay, and so does this one. So does this one. But no, and then you try and get, you know, oh, it's sort of dusty Sicilian cherries. You're like, okay, but I've never had one of those. Not to say that those aren't important and good, but ultimately it is someone, I don't know, just giving you a sense of what it might taste like. But I think the most important thing about a wine is where it takes you and the connections that it, it can help you make. Um, you know, I don't need to tell you about how wine is, I don't know about uniquely, but very, adept at expressing a specific location and weather set and culture and personal winemaking style. And so, and I also found in the course of doing the column that the people who are drawn to the industry in general uh, are always, almost always thoughtful people. Uh, they they love, they love, you know, integrate, making, uh, taking this thing that is made in nature and trying to make something expressive and beautiful out of it. Uh, and so a lot of the work that we did on the columns was, um, was profiles of people. I met a lot of great winemakers, a lot of interesting people. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, because right at that time I started to make wine myself um, in my basement with some friends. Uh, so, um, so the wine column uh, lasted about five years and then uh, the Willamette Week changed direction and uh, cut us loose. Um, but they let me write a last column, uh, which is really nice of them. And so it was really kind of interesting to you know, it's the, the dawn of a new millennium, and what does that mean, and what have I learned about wine? Um, and I just 
regurgitated a bunch of that to you already, but, um, but you know, it's, it's still held my interest. Uh, I wrote a little bit after that, did a piece for Fortune, did some stuff for Northwest Palette, um, but mostly I went back to work at my main business. I'm a designer and a filmmaker. And so, um, so I was doing that during the column too, and towards the end of the column, I decided that I wanted to make, uh, a, well first I wanted to make a documentary about why Americans have such a big problem with wine. And so I filmed a trailer and I've never been in front of a camera. I certainly hadn't really wielded a video camera at all. And I think the, the, the I think what I was trying to do is sound. Uh, that's something that kept coming up um, in, the, in the column quite a bit was how um, the, the, the wine industry was sort of shooting itself in the foot uh, in terms of, you know, its, it's branding worked really well for a while, and then it started to be a little bit of a drag, and I, I don't know, you know better than I do, the, the statistics now, fewer people drinking wine, uh, the, the people who do drink wine are aging out of the marketplace, and that's, I don't know, a direct result of that sort of built-in classism, in my opinion. Um, so, but that also, what I thought was really interesting was that um, that was also for a lot of Americans back then, and maybe some today, that was also equivalent of non-Americanness. You had beer, that's what Americans drank. You had wine, that's what froofy people who wanted to live somewhere else drank. And I was just really interested in why that was the case. And uh, so that's part of what I wanted to do this series on. And so, uh, so I went down to a thing and I pitched it to somebody from HBO and with my trailer. And, uh, and the woman I talked to, she's super nice, kind of a powerful person as it turns out. She said, but who would watch that? Nobody really cares about wine. <laughs> At least not enough to, you know, sell it. Uh, as a series, and so I went back. But then I, but then I had shot enough that oh God, I can't remember the, the chain of events. But in the course of that, I'd spent a year in a couple of vineyards, um, starting from you know darkest January, uh, and this was 1999. Um, and following uh, Brickhouse, Westry, Cameron, uh, those three wineries in particular, and spending a lot of time in Abbey Ridge Vineyard with um, uh, Bill Wayne. And so I would get up, you know, the best times to film anything are, you know, early in the morning, late at day. Uh, that's when the, the light is nicest. So I would get up really early and take the morning off from my work and go out and just sort of wander around his vineyard. And every now and then I would bump into him and we'd talk and he's, he's, he's a wonderful, gregarious guy who spends most of his time 
on his tractor by himself. And so he's very eager to talk with somebody. But he was really such a, uh, that was one of the most favorite periods of my life, I have to say, just sort of being there. And then through the course of the year, seeing the vineyard evolve. Um, and you know, feeling like really pretty close to it about how it begins and, and how it slowly matures and you know, feeling the air change and the moisture change and all that stuff. Um, and that was just really uh, potent for me. And then as it turned out, uh, 1999 was uh, at first gonna be a, a disastrous vintage and then it turned out to be an amazing vintage. So it's perfect for TV. Couldn't have manufactured it better myself. Uh, so, you know, so uh, in 2021, I cut it together. Um, 2021? Yes, is that right? No, that's all right. 2001. Sorry, 2001, thank you. That sounds more right. Yes, yeah, right. Uh, and uh, I pitched it to OPB and, and they said, oh yeah, come on in, let's talk about that. And I was like, oh wow, all right. So I was thinking, okay, so should I, I'm just gonna be really you know, like generous about this and I'll, I'll let them have it for like $30,000 or something, that'd be great. And so I went in and I talked to the head of programming and uh, his name I can't remember, but he's there forever, super powerful guy in the industry. And he said, okay, yeah, I think we want to do this, so we'll give you $10 a minute. And I went, uh, uh. <laughs> So for Life of Vine, I made uh, $300. Uh, because I didn't know how public broadcasting works. You know, you have to find all the money in advance. And I didn't know, didn't know anything about that. But that was, it was totally fine. Because that year, and so, so, um, so they aired it, uh, I can't remember, can't remember when, in the spring sometime. And um, it w got the best viewership of the night. And, uh, and then I was able to put it into a feeder network for PBS, uh, the NETA. And it got shown a bunch of places all around the country. And uh, so overall, it was, an amazing experience on a number of a number of fronts. Number one, as I mentioned, was just spending the time in in that vineyard uh, with Bill, who just is so in love with that piece of land, and sort of falling in, in love with it with him, um, and just following this great story of these people, you know, of the, those winemakers in particular, who just love what they're doing and want to make the best possible thing they can make, but in a way that was really uh, kind of down to earth. It was just a, you know, just wonderful people. But also it turned out to be, uh, I paid $300, or I was paid $300 to go to film school. So, you know, in the beginning of that, uh, you know, I was doing my own filming, and, you know, I gradually got better at it, uh, but, then later, I, you know, when it came time to edit it, I would start looking at some of that 
early footage and uh, my, my wife would just hear me yelling at the screen. You're like, focus, come on, give me like a second. But now I'm like, <laughs> oh God, it was terrible. So, but gradually, thankfully, I got enough footage over time <laughs> to sort of wield something together. And, you know, I knew some people in the film industry who donated some of their time. I learned a lot from them. Uh, and then towards the, you know, at the end, after it premiered, uh, I got this uh, service so ancient called the carriage service. And those, this, basically it's a report that tells you where your thing is gonna air. And it gives you about two weeks notice. And so I spent the, whenever, a couple of months just watching those carriage reports and I saw it was gonna be shown in Houston. So I would do the research and find out you know, if there's any sort of, they weren't called influentials back then, but people, wine industry people or whatever, and any uh, newspapers that might have a wine column, and so I'd send them stuff and a promo video if I could. And uh, so I got interviewed in Houston on air with some morning radio show, and uh, it did really well there. Um, I got a great review in the New York, the LA Times. Their wine writer really loved it, uh, and so that did really well there. But it was just kind of neat to sort of mentally travel around the country, you know, like it's going to be showing in Dayton. Oh, what's what's Dayton like? So I'd pull up the newspapers. What's going on in Dayton? So I kind of felt like I'd traveled around the country, even though I hadn't. So I had this amazing education from the nuts and bolts of how you film something, to how you edit something together, to how you sell it or don't sell it, uh, to how you market it. So uh, it was, it was a, a, just a great experience. So after that, so during that time, I had also started to make wine with some friends. Originally it was James and me. And then it sort of gradually grew into a kind of cooperative. And another thing, sort of another manifestation of the, the wine thing is this sort of community building aspect of it. Um, the, the thing that I have always loved doing is bringing people together to work on a project and make something together. And this turned out to be a perfect thing for that. Um, so we started with just us, and then we, it was a couple more people from, that we knew at school, but then they invited some people, and then those people invited some people, so I ended up getting to meet all these people I never would have met before from you know, a fairly diverse uh, set of uh, uh, society uh, you know, or uh, culture in Portland. And uh, this is going to be our 28th vintage this fall got about 30 people and families uh, and I'm the winemaker and dishwasher um, and you know some people are into it because they because they're kind of interested in making wine but some people just like you know the, there's very stringent requirements that you have to work we're super careful not to you know, cross any OLCC lines. It's everybody has to contribute. Everybody has to work. Everybody has to, uh, you know, put in money and so on. Uh, nobody's paid. So, uh, but you know, at the end of it, you know, we have. Uh, we're in fact next 
not this coming weekend, but next weekend we have a bottling. Those are the big things of the year, and we everyone is there, and everyone's. I, I love making the you know the machine of the logistics, and we fine tuned everything over the over the years, and so everybody works you know pretty hard for a couple of hours, and then we celebrate, and there is. You know, it's fine to celebrate all the time, but it tastes so much better when you have worked for it and earned it. And so there's a lot of people who are just really addicted to that, and I, I am too. So, um, and I've learned a lot as a winemaker. Uh, I, uh, I worked, I did a harvest with uh, John Groshaw, just a couple of days. Did a harvest at Cameron in a grim, grim 2013 harvest. Um, I worked with Kelly Fox for about five years, learned so much from her, um, and that I've tried to incorporate in the wines that we make. So, um, and I guess the, uh, the last sort of wine industry thing that I've done was I was on the board of the IPNC for, I was trying to remember on the way over, four years, might be three, right in the middle of the aughts. And uh, Amy Wesselman, who was the executive director, still is, I believe, um, asked me, uh, I, she was, well, she's part of Westry, and so we filmed them, but I kind of knew them from school. And, uh, you know, she's wonderful, warm, generous person. And uh, so she wanted to try and shake things up a little bit on the board to have somebody on the board who wasn't in the industry, or rather in the wine making industry, just to have a different perspective. So um, we ended up working pretty closely together on a bunch of different projects, and the funnest one was, I think this is 2005, they did, the focus of the IPNC was Burgundy versus New Zealand versus Oregon. And so, I pitched making a little film to introduce it. And uh, so, you know, just, just like the, the carriage service, you know, trying to sell my little documentary all on the country, I, uh, I got to you know, talk with people in New Zealand and Burgundy and sort of mentally travel there, so that was fun. And they sent me some, some of their video. And so, we ended up making uh, a piece that it started the weekend, and I don't you were, I don't know if you were around for it, but so it was in the theater here, and I came out in a tuxedo, and I said, "Well, welcome everybody. Uh, glad you're here. So we're going to, uh, you know, the, we're going to have a little uh, the theme this year is blah blah blah." And then I went, "Oh, don't! Oh, gotta go!" And I ran off the stage. Film starts and then shows me running, <laughs> and then ultimately I, I I end up in this vineyard with Matt Burson of Portland Wine Company, who's far better actor than me. He was great and I was terrible, but anyway, so we do this thing about uh, about wine and how it works, and and then I'm intercutting stuff from uh, I talked to Veronique Drouin. Uh, some guys from, uh, 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 from, from New Zealand, a couple other Oregon wine industry people, and, and then we were back in the vineyard with Matt Burson, and I'm supposed to be his waiter, is the idea, his valet. And so ultimately, 
he tells me to go away. And so it shows me running through the McMinnville campus and then opening the door that everyone had just opened to get into the library. And then I run back on stage. It was brilliant. <laughs> Never before done. Anyway, people enjoyed it and it was fun to do. So that was like the biggest thing that I did for the IPNC. Uh, the next year, we worked on the first sustainability program. Um, so that in, that's a, in a nutshell. It's an interesting wine life here in Oregon. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna come back to all of those things, but let's back up for a moment and sure. talk about life before Oregon. Tell us about uh, where you were born and raised and what brought you to Oregon in the first place. Hmm. Uh, I was born in Rochester. My father's an academic, Rochester, New York. Uh, he is a, still is a professor of Sanskrit. Um, uh, and uh, so his first teaching gig was in uh, Rochester, New York. I was born there, but we pretty quickly moved to Seattle. I was there uh, until uh, the end of fifth grade. Um, during that time, we, he spent a 15 months in central India with um, one of the preeminent scholars of Sanskrit. And so I spent a year when I was five, I turned five in India, and I'm told I didn't speak English except to my parents. Uh, I just went native, and I've, I've always wondered if it's somewhere in there. Uh, I don't remember a word of it, sadly. But um, So then we came back, and then my father got an even better job at the University of Chicago. That's how we ended up in Hyde Park. Uh, so I was there from sixth grade through twelfth grade. Um, I was uh, English and journalism was my big thing there. I was on the school newspaper, learned just so much. We had a great teacher there about how to write and also something about design. Um, one of the one of the seasons that we worked on won a national award. Um, so from there, graduated and I went. Then I, uh, I'd always, when I saw it's time to go to college, and uh, I remembered Seattle with such great affection that I really wanted to go back to the Northwest. So I cast a couple of essays out there. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and somehow I got into Reed. So I went out to Reed, sight unseen, got on the train going across the country, and no fewer than three people I bumped into said, oh, Reed, oh, uh, you know that you can still change, you can still transfer. And I was like, what? But it turned out to be great for me, I guess. <laughs> uh, it was great education, um, learned a lot, met some wonderful people, uh, and drank a lot of Blitz beer. Um, that is the whole Reed experience. <laughs> yes, well, that you can talk about on camera anyway. Um, so, and I was a, an English major there. Um, so, towards, uh, let's see, at the end of my college career, uh, a friend of I decided that we would start a cafe at Reed. Um, so, we did all the work to make that happen. Um, and ultimately, at the end of that first year, we gave it to the student body. Uh, and then at that, so right about then, some good friends of mine were thinking about starting an alternative newspaper. And so I 
joined up with them and we had an alternative newspaper uh, for three-ish years called The Free Agent. And um, I was the managing editor, basically, uh, the one who kept the trains running on time, if you will. And uh, it was a great paper. Uh, the lead, our lead uh, uh, reporter was Chris Lydgate, worked for Willamette Week ultimately later. He won us a bunch of awards. Uh, he's a great reporter. Um, but the thing that we didn't quite figure out was advertising. So it turns out that's pretty important. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, I was, towards the end, I was paying my own money to publish it. And, uh, and it was, became unsustainable. So ultimately that um, But during that time, I had to become the designer of the paper. And then on the strength of that, I basically lied my way into a job as an art director at a tiny little firm. Um, and then ultimately started my own uh, design firm with a good friend of mine as a partner. And we did that for 23 years. Uh, at that point, I decided I wanted to do more film. I wanted to have a little more flexibility. And so I left the company, and so I've been freelance ever since. And so what I do mostly is brand strategy and communication strategy, um, the idea being figure out what it is that uh, someone wants to say and to who and to what effect, uh, and figuring out that message uh, and how to articulate that in a way that makes that connection between those two people or those two groups and then implement that. So then I would also design and build websites, uh, of course, logo work, film work. Um, sometimes it's messaging, sometimes it's social media. So, um, so that's, and here I am today. <laughs> With that kind of work, tell me about sort of finding that path and to be like, to getting, getting to that specialty eventually, how did that become sort of what you focused on and, and what was sort of the featured part of your work? Hmm. I think, I guess it was probably being an English major, um, you know, thinking about um, how books communicate what they do. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it is the idea of communication um, and how powerful communication can be, how, how, how important good communication is for uh, our world. <laughs> um, and, you know, figuring out, so, so it's not a very coherent answer, but um, you can sort of see how there's messaging strategy is about taking uh, something, some person, some idea, some policy, and f figuring out a way to talk about it so that someone else will be interested in hearing it. And yes, that can, you know, at its worst, that could be a bunch of lies, but, but there's so many reasons, mostly, that someone probably wants to pay attention to. It's more, really, the difficulty is more about how do you clear out all the other 
crap that people hear all the time. You know, the din of advertising, the din of messaging, on your phone all the time, not paying attention to anything. Um, how do you figure out a way to take someone's important idea and craft it, simplify it without dumbing it down too much in a way that makes that connection? And you can sort of see that preoccupation in you know, what I love about wine, that it also makes that connection, kind of. Um, and the, 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 um, the garage, uh, Le Garagis is the name of the winemaking thing that we do. Uh, and that's, you know, making these great connections with all these people one-on-one. Um, -on -one. Um, I, I, I love, I'm always ready to do a project with somebody, um, to make something with somebody else because it, we, we create this connection between ourselves and then we, we physically manifest it in something that we have created. And, you know, those can be big projects and small projects. I've helped a bunch, a number of friends do electrical wiring. I sort of picked that up as a little fun thing I like to do. So I do some wiring for people and, you know, we live in uh, a time that is pretty scary, I think, um, where people are just more and more atomized. They're more in their own little silos. That's been exacerbated by social media, it's been exacerbated by phones, and of course exacerbated by the pandemic. And you see that reflected, I'm, I'm veering way off course for you here, but you see that reflected in, you know, I was just re, uh, listening to a podcast by the columnist Ezra Klein about uh, men and boys, uh, uh, you know, not finishing college, not, you know, losing track of stuff and falling behind. And uh, it's just one aspect of it. And, uh, you know, it's just so, and then, then you then um, then there's AI, which sounds great, but that means that m even more people will be replaced and out of jobs and atomized into their own little worlds. And I don't think people are built to be that way. Uh, they're certainly not happy that way. And that leads, you know, when you are a prisoner of the media that that you that feeds your view of the outside world, that media controls your your narrative, um, and so you can imagine with with AI and with not to get into politics, but you know the politics coming at you. Um, you're starting to get people who are really out of touch with what it really means to be with other people. And so I could save my, you know, I'm soapbox. Um, to sort of twist that back into wine, um, one of the wonderful things about wine is that it, it can bring people together. Uh, it, it, it means sitting, you know, at best, it's sitting down at a table and it's eating uh, together. And that's, you know, that has deep communal roots, you know, since the beginning. Um, 
and to spend that time one-on-one -on -one with somebody else or some other people, where you actually get a sense of the three-dimensionality of someone else and the things they believe or don't believe. You have discussions, you have arguments, and you start to flesh people out. And so, so I, I think wine can help do that. Um, uh, and so what I kind of want to do with the rest of my career is figure out a way that I can, you know, against all the trends going towards isolation, how can we, like, see each other as people again? Uh, and I don't know how we're going to do it, but that just seems like the next great fight. Um, and, uh, and communication is all about that. Um, getting people to understand the depth of somebody else. So you mentioned your kind of preconceptions on wine, which as I think, as you said, are, are fairly common. I think among people who don't know, grow up around wine or don't know wine very well. Uh, as you started going to Liner and Elson, as you started to discover these wines and enjoying them with company, tell me about what your what your conceptions were as you started the job at Willamette Week. Where, where were you in sort of your wine education and sort of wine appreciation uh, path at that point? Mm. I mean, I think I'd already been converted. <laughs> uh, already drunk the wine Kool-Aid. Um, I think, you know, the thing that was striking to me as I did the column was, you know, when you start to get into the wine world, it becomes your world. Uh, and so, but I'd look around and like nobody else was, you know, people even close to me weren't paying attention to the wine world like I was. And, and when they were, they had these great kind of psychological, mostly cultural barriers to enjoying it. Um, you know, it became with all this freight. Um, you know, in, a, in, a, in America, you are what you buy. And uh, if you bought wine, that's said you thought you were better than everybody else, that you were sophisticated. Uh, there was, when I was shooting the, that trailer that never went anywhere, I did a man on the street interview in, uh, in Chicago. And this one guy told me, it's kind of bougie. Well, it kind of sums it up. And so, so part of what the column was trying to do was get people past that to like the things that were actually, that were closer to the essence of what wine was, at least in, in my opinion. And so, you know, I, I, uh, at one point, um, the beer reviewer quit at Willamette Week. And so for four months or so, I was also the beer reviewer, which was really fun. And I can tell you, like, the beer industry people, they're just, wine industry people are fun, but beer industry people are just a lot more welcoming. And uh, they're like, oh, come and try this. And they're inviting you to do stuff. Nobody, like few people in the wine industry ever did that to me, which it's just kind of a different thing. Didn't take it personally, but it was really striking that the sort of cultural personality, it was just, I think because beer is so more ingrained with the sort of 
perception about what Americans think they are, it's just a lot easier for them to sell their stuff because they didn't have to jump over that barrier. They could go straight to the sell. They didn't have to do the pre-sell. Um, so, um, so that's that's uh, you know what a lot of the column was about. And gee, I mean, this was in the '90s, and this is still an, an issue today. Um, and you know, I know parts of the industry are trying to figure out a way around that. It is, I sort of think of it as, and my information is not super up to date, but I sort of think of it like golden handcuffs, that the industry, like, still most of its money is from older people. And, and those are the people who are willing to spend $85 for a bottle of wine. Um, uh, not to say that in many cases it's not worth it. I mean, Kelly Fox, you know, one of the things that was so, she just opened my eyes to so much. Uh, but one of them was the value of, you know, what goes into an $85 bottle of wine. It's a lot of work, a lot of passion, a lot of time, a lot of expertise, you know, the expense of everything. Uh, you know, I joke with new garagists that we have all this equipment that we paid a lot of money for that we use for one week a year. It's, you know, it's just a capital-intensive, crazy thing. Um, but, you know, that's, those are the golden handcuffs. And that, and I think, you know, it is, how do you market to people who are, I don't know, millennials and younger? And I think those messages, I'll bet the industry think tanks have found, they can't, it's hard to do those both because they undercut one another. You can't market to baby boomers that it's about, you know, all the preoccupations with class but also leisure um, and ease and uh, vistas um, and, you know, get millennials interested in it because they don't have that money. They don't have that time, and you know, they don't want to be boomers. <laughs> okay, boomer. Um, so, but you know, the marketing for millennials and younger is, you know, stuff like that uh, that Underwood is doing. You know, putting in a can, making it just a lot more accessible uh, and a lot less complicated. Um, you know, you do see some advertising that is about, you know, it, it's. Some of it is about like doing it with your friends, but it's you know more towards just it's a a buzz vehicle, which it is. Um, but that's kind of like how do you, you can't market those two things at the same time? I think it's really difficult, and so it feels like the industry just can't let go of the one uh, and can't quite embrace the other. It's, it's super complicated, and I don't envy them that transition. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. Um, yeah, it's just stuff is so damn expensive, you know? I mean, and how do you, you know, I think more importantly, maybe, like some, some of the advertising does this. It's like getting together with friends. Like, is there a way, there, there's got to be a way, in fact, somebody hired me, I could find a way, um, to 
you know, pull all the stuff that, at least that I find interesting about wine, that you can, you can travel in every glass. You build this connection with people and cultures from all over the world as you build a connection with the people who are right in front of you. It's this great sort of interwebbing experience. And uh, there's got to be a way that you can do that so that it isn't, you aren't just dumbing down beverage as a liquor, wine as a liquor. Um, uh, but that has some of that resonance, you know, which I think is really there. So, I don't know. Hire me. <laughs> you know, one of those like placards with your phone number on it to hold up every once in a while. I need a sandwich board. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about those years writing for the wine. Like obviously the late 90s, interesting time in Oregon wine. Uh, yeah. Tell me about some of the people you met, some of the stories that, that captivated you at the time and, and what you sort of saw, how you saw the industry evolving in that time. Yeah. Let's see. So, well, that would have been like 96 or late 95, I think, was our first column. And um, so I think, well, let's see. What would I say about that? Certainly during that time, I well, I think that was, I want to say, was that when the Evanstads came in? Was it right. then? And for a lot of people, that was an ominous change. Um, because, I mean, the, you know, the, the, let's see, the winery industry, well, it's, it's a, you know, it's a business. And so, you know, I met, I met so many people who just love doing it. And, uh, and that was so inspiring to me. Um, but, you know, of course, then they have to turn around and they have to sell it, you know, they have to buy the grapes for the next year. And so, you know, how do you do that in increasingly crowded shelves? I mean, you know, uh, how, do you, how do you distinguish yourself, especially if you're a, a small winery? And so, you, have, you know, you have to get more capital. You, have, you know, you just have to build up in some way and you have to work hard doing it. Um, but it was always, there was always a little bit of a grassrootsy thing about the Oregon wine industry. Now, you know, you've got Duran came in in the late 80s, and that was, you know, as you know, a huge tectonic shift and a vote of approval. And of course, they had money, but I think most people that I knew uh, felt like that was, you know, they, they came in appropriately. You know, they weren't like flashy and they weren't, you know, they hadn't made all their money in plastic surgery and now they're buying a vanity thing. Um, uh, but the, I think people felt like the Evanstads, I don't know, you know, they built, they built their thing on the top of a hill and there was this unwritten rule in the wine industry that you leave the tops of the hills, just like in Burgundy. And they're like, yeah, screw that. Or I don't know what they said, but anyway, they did it. Um, and uh, so, you know, that was, so, and of course, you know, more big players have come in since then. I mean, was it the Kendall Jackson or what? I mean, you know, you know better than me how many big players are in there. And, you know, it's a business um, and they have the money uh, and that's good. But I guess the, the thing that I always found most interesting were the small players 
who, of course, they had to make money doing it, but they just really loved it. And, you know, Kelly was later, but it's just a great example of someone just consumed by it. Like, it is who she is and what she lives to do. It's just amazing. But so, you know, I met early on, we did a column on John Paul at Cameron Winery, and he's, uh, uh, he's just a fantastic person, and his wife Terry's fantastic, and he's got such a great attitude about wine. It's like, doesn't take any of it seriously except for the wine itself. And I ended up, um, so just fast forward or digress for a second, I ended up doing, so they did a, a newsletter every fall, and uh, to, uh, to, um, to uh, sort of get people to come to their open house. And I, I, I don't know if you've seen any of them, but they are, they're just hysterical parodies of things. There was some Martha Stewart living, so John dressed up with a wig, and they wrote copy for this newsletter. It's just really fun stuff. Some of it they would say, eh, hasn't, maybe it hasn't aged well, but it was funny, certainly funny at the time. And so somewhere in the, I can't remember, maybe the late aughts, they asked me if I could do a video newsletter. And so we also collaborated and we came up with this parody of Mondo Vino, if you remember that film. And, uh, and so we got his son Julian to be this sort of, this guy who's all about marketing and telling you how to market your winery and forget about this artisanal blah, 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 and he was hysterical. And so we made a little mini documentary there and put it out. And then in the years since, I've done five, I think, pieces from them, with them. And it's just, they're so, they're so fun. And uh, I, I think their attitude about wine I, jibes with mine. So anyway, it was great to meet him uh, and sort of be taken up by his passion. Uh, you know, Doug Tennell, uh, he's always really generous with his time and his beautiful, rich, mellifluous voice. And you just go, oh, what do you want? I'll do anything. Um, but, you know, one of the early organic uh, grape growers, uh, organic, only eight you know, vegetarian. I mean, he's kind of an unusual guy back in the day. Uh, so it was cool to meet him. And I don't know, I think I met a lot of different people. Um, uh, I remember, hmm, well, so, you know, Dick Erath just passed away. Um, and one of my favorite columns was he had a little, he had a, he published a book about. The Boys Up North. Thank you, The Boys Up North. And so, you know, I thought, okay, I guess I should review this. And so it just seemed a little slick to me. And so I started to dig into it. And I found out that it was ghostwritten by his PR firm. And, and plus, you know, he, the PR firm took, you know, just some liberties with, especially vis-a-vis -vis David Lett. Nothing too egregious, but it was just, it was like a big vanity project and he had every right to do it. Um, but so I kind of busted him on that. And, uh, 
He didn't firebomb my car or anything, so it's nice of him. <laughs> but yeah, I, did, I didn't really ever talk to him after that. Um, but you know, thriving industry, uh, the guy who he got to be his winemaker, Rob Stewart, uh, I got, you know, I really loved him, and then he went on to do his own winery, and loved talking with him. He's just uh, such a, such a straightforward, honest, you know, person. Uh, it just makes you feel good about people, you know, talking to him. Um, another favorite source was, oh, what was his name? The David the Shanane. Um, the redheaded guy. Peter Rosbeck. Thank you. If ever I needed a snarky anything, he was like my speed dial. Because he was always, he was ready to say anything. So it was always fun to talk to him. Uh, the, you know, I met Veronique a couple times. Such a, such a charming person, really so knowledgeable. Um, so I met a lot of wonderful people and uh, learned a lot from them. They were gracious to take my calls. I have a wine. They're like, just. <laughs> so it was very nice of them. Um, but yeah, I guess I, I would say, you know, it was just, oh, and also I think, too, that year was the high water mark of uh, MADD uh, and the sort of wine prohibition. And, you know, of course, they had very good reason. To, to do all that, but it's sort of, it was interesting because it's, it leaked into the, of course it was a direct challenge to the liquor industry. Um, and so there was a lot of jockeying back and forth with you know, wine prohibition and you know, how the industry kind of handled that. Um, so I remember we, we talked about that a little bit. I interviewed Chances Robinson once, which is really just a super gracious person. And uh, this was like, you know, when, or still, you know, don't drink when you're pregnant at all. And um, you know, my mother drank martinis and smoked. And uh, well, maybe you, this is like, I'm, I'm case in point why you shouldn't do that. I don't know, but. You might, you might end up at Reed if that happens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> don't try this at home. Um, but you know, she was pregnant at the time, and I was like, so do you drink? And she said, yeah, I, I drink moderately. I, of course, I have to spit, it's my business. Um, and, I have to, and she said, I find I don't, I don't really like the taste you know, while I'm pregnant. But um, you know, she was sort of uh, kind of, ref, you know, I don't know, refreshing in her candor about that. Now, you know, no lawyer would let you print anything like that for good reason. You know, it's, you don't want it to be an excuse for people to uh, abuse anything. But it was kind of nice to get, just give another little perspective to that. And so, you know, that kind of w started to wane a little bit towards the end of um, my column. So tell me about the, you mentioned obviously Life and Vine almost, almost kind of as an accident or as a, at least not, not the, origi yeah. the original intent of the project. Tell me what that taught you about wine that you hadn't already learned. What was, what was it about being in a vineyard and being that sort of that close with winemakers for that long that you learned? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, one way to say it is uh, the, the sort of slippery concept of terroir. And 
I know there are a bunch of definitions out there, and I'm not sure I have mine is correct, but what I think about is terroir is the, the sum total of the, the clone and the vine and how it's tended and the, the soil it's in and the aspect of the land it is and the microclimate it's on and the vagaries of the weather every year and the, the training or interest of the winemaker and the people who tend to the vines. It's like this totality of all those things. And some of those overall as sort of a repeated, well, maybe it was said as a bell curve, over time, those start to ha be constants or kind of constants. The weather does change every year, but it doesn't change that much in a certain area. Winemaker doesn't change that much. And so over time, you get this sort of uh, accreted characteristics of a place. And being there every, not every day, but once a week for an entire season and, you know, standing there in the rain and listening to the rain fall in the forest and on the vines, uh, or, and these are bare vines at this point, and plopping on the, the earth and just sitting there and listening to that and stopping for a moment, you know, so the, part of the reason why I loved doing that was I got out of the city and I just slowed way down and I paid attention. I spent uh, six, whatever it is, eight months paying attention to the world around me. And the vineyard is a, a manufactured world, so it's kind of that in-between space between nature and, I don't know, a manufacturing plant. Um, but. But it is like, it is sort of interacting with that all the time and you start to see you know, bird life and you hear the wind going through the trees in a certain way and you see the vines, you know, the, the, the sap start to run and the buds start to break and how they break and how they make these little flowers and then they make the little pistols and you're just looking at all this and seeing it happening over time. And uh, so that connection with place, I think, is the biggest thing I learned about that. In addition to just fleshing out the kind of personality it takes to make wine, um, I think you have to be, certainly if you're not coming to it with a lot of money, you have to be pretty stubborn. You have to really believe in what you're doing, and you have to be sort of a, 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 a certain kind of personality. And usually they're more thoughtful people. Uh, who want to express something from the natural world. I don't know, it's kind of really vague there. Um, and of course there's other stuff on top of that too. You know, some of them are, are you know, like the attention, uh, some of them love the manufacturing process. You know, all these different personalities come into there, but there's like this, stubborn philosophy about the importance of the earth and how making a wine not only um, gives you a window into it, but also uh, helps preserve it. Um, you know, it, it, it gives, it's this place where 
people have to slow down and pay attention. Um, so that's, I also learned about that, I guess. You mentioned that year as being kind of like you said, like you said, your film school year of learning, learning the process of film and, and of. So tell me about the, the storytelling aspect for you. Uh, you spend this time, you meet these people, you you see this year in, in a vineyard and the and the process. You have all the stuff at the end. So tell me about that process for you of determining how to tell the how best to tell the story and how uh, sort of how it turned out in your in your perspective now. Yeah. Um, so. I knew I wanted to do, like, just see what happened uh, over the course of a year in a vineyard. And so, as, as I mentioned, I went out about once a week uh, and, uh, you know, filmed and tried to pay attention to what was changing, what was different, um, and, you know, dropping in on winemakers along the way, where are they in their process. Um, but I didn't really know what I was going to Originally, I was shooting it just as background for this series um, that didn't end up going anywhere. Uh, but but I think I was, you know, just a regular year in a vineyard, tough to sell, especially back then. Uh, you know, there's there's more wine stuff out there now. Um, and uh, so it would probably be a little bit easier to sell now. But back then, I mean, the HBO woman was right. There's, there's just not any interest in it. Um, and, and plus, you know, so much of uh, certainly uh, uh, film industry, especially the public uh, industry, is focused uh, even back then on getting, uh, you know, unheard voices into the mainstream, as it should be. And, you know, a rich people hobby thing is just the last on the list there. Um, so if it had been just a normal year, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now, I guess. Um, but it turned out it, to have this great cliffhammer, uh, cliffhanger uh, dynamic because it's, it was a late year, and so they're already worried uh, about you know that pushing harvest back into you know too late into the fall, and this is before climate change made everything warm again. So they really were like skirting into into the the, the rains, and then in early September it started to rain, and they're like, oh my, God. they thought, oh maybe we'll squeeze it out, and it started to rain, which puts back everything and there's the danger of, you know, if there's too much, it gets up into the grapes, all that other stuff, and mildew and so on. Uh, and so it was like, oh, cliffhanger, nail biter. And then something happened in late September where all those storms gathering out in the Pacific just disappeared. And, uh, I, and I think there's a line that Doug Tunnell has in the documentary says, we're making wine, baby. <laughs> we're making, I can't even go to his low, that low. <laughs> um, and so it was like cliffhanger and happy ending. So that, that really helped a lot. And you know, they, you know, they were just happy. And of course it ended up being uh, what some people consider one of the best vintages ever in Oregon. So it became the story of that as well. 
So it was, a lot of it was luck, for sure. Um, but, you know, I'm really glad I did it. I've, you know, I learned a lot about shooting. I'm a much better shooter, definitely a much better editor. I'm a better sound uh, person, um, definitely a better director, uh, and I'm a better storyteller. Um, but I think I'm also, a, a, I don't know, a more, um, a happier wine drinker, I guess. You know, I just have a better connection to that pace uh, and the kind of people who make it. So, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. One more question about, about the experience. You mentioned the sort of the after part. You, you have the product and now it's being shown and now you're, you're traveling the world from the comfort of your living room. Um, tell me about that part of the process for you. What, was, what were people excited about or asking you about when you were talking to Houston or, or Dayton or wherever? What were the kinds of questions and what were, did they have any concept of an Oregon wine industry at that point? Yeah. I'm not sure I could speak to that, but I know that the idea of wine, I, I'm sure I wasn't the first to spend a year in a vineyard. So like and film it or whatever. But for a lot of people, that was the first they'd kind of seen something like that. And, and I, I feel pretty proud that I shot it pretty beautifully. Uh, <laughs> I had 55 hours of footage. And I was lucky to get 24 minutes out of that. But you know, the broken clock is right twice a day. And so I got, thankfully, just enough footage to really tell that story in a way that was really kind of beautiful. Uh, and so that kind of made people excited about that. So I think it was more, uh, the, I, it was certainly about the Oregon wine industry, but it's also generally about wine, I think, in general. Like when I talked to the Houston people, uh, I did my research and I name-dropped their wine region, and boy, did they love that. Uh, I still haven't had a chance to have any of their wines, but out, outside of Austin somewhere, there's actually hills where they make wine. You have this thing that, you know, you're just, you're just in the middle of it, you know, I've been covering the wine industry, I've been making wine, a lot of winemaking people I know, and then you just take one little step outside and there's nothing, nobody knows anything about that. And, and so you, it makes you remember that, uh, you know, any preoccupation is like that, you know, you get outside of, you're like, everything's about academia, and then you step outside and nobody's paying attention to it, and you're like, wait, why not? Uh, so running through a lot of the way Americans think about wine, or they used to anyway, is that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a class thing, it's about snobbery. And still to this day, you know, I'm talking to somebody about wine and they go, oh, I'm gonna be a snob. And what I like to point out is that the pursuit of knowledge about anything is always good. It's only when you weaponize it that it's bad, and that's when it becomes snobbery. So, and that's, you know, beer has plenty of people who are snobs, but plenty of people who are, aren't. People who are into anything, you know, old cars, uh, camera equipment, whatever, you know, 
having that knowledge, it's all good. Uh, just as a knowledge of wine. It's just when you use it as a bludgeon, that's when it deserves to be slapped down. Um, but, you know, again, that's sort of, some of that is just baked into uh, 40 or 50 years of marketing in the wine industry. So it's tough to get beyond that. So I want to talk about your winemaking, but I have one, sort of one more question about your film. Obviously, you, you've done a lot since. So tell us, take us through uh, some of the projects, some of your maybe favorite projects in the, in the film world that you've done since Life and Vine. Uh, well, um, I've done a lot of my film work for uh, public agencies and nonprofits. Um, I co-founded this organization called the Bicycle Transportation Alliance in the early 90s. Uh, I named it. Uh, it had this really unwieldy name. Uh, and so my firm and I did all of its uh, promotion and marketing for 20 years. Uh, we donated it. Uh, and so I did some film work for that. And along the way, you know, I, was, I biked to work every day, part of why I was interested in it. And uh, so I got involved with the bicycle program at the city of Portland, and then we started doing work for them. Um, and so a lot of my career has been in the nonprofit and, and government worlds. And so I've done a number of things for the Portland Bureau of Transportation. Um, I think my favorite one was there's this uh, event called Sunday Parkways that was started 15 years ago, something like that. And so they wanted to make a, a little film to kind of get people excited about it. And, uh, and so I figured out a way that I could be inside Sunday Parkways uh, and film it by sort of hanging off the back of this electric truck bike. And so, and that was just, it was, so it was really fun to shoot everything in motion. I had a little steady cam thing that I was, I was working. But it's just so amazing, like you, you know, you're driving along, the, with the frame, and then people are biking along behind you, and everybody's smiling. And it just fills you with warmth. You know, all these different people from all over the city, black, white, Asian, young, old, whatever, everybody's smiling. And you're like, we have a chance after all. And so, it was, so it was really fun to do, um, so it was fun to do that. So I made this thing. Uh, and a couple of, a friend of mine told me that she saw it for the first time with some other bicycle advocates and they, she said they cried at the end. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, that's a lot of the work I've done uh, there. Um, I've done, a, you know, some commercial work. Uh, uh, and, you know, and then work for Cameron as well. Um, that's really, that's really been fun because we just start with a concept and then take it from there. And some of it happens in the edits, but they're just really funny people. And so it's just wonderful little alchemy. Uh, and I look forward to doing it whenever they let me.
So talk about the, the, the winemaking and the, the garagiste. Um, obviously, you mentioned how it started and how it's grown and how your, your sort of your skill set has grown. Uh, so tell me about uh, the wines you're making now and, and what and what makes you, I guess, proudest of them and how far they've come and and uh, maybe anything you've learned in, in the process of making wine for that long. Mm. Um, so we started. Uh, in 1995, and we didn't really have access to any real grapes, but we found some at this vineyard up near La Center. So we went up there, and it, it was this vineyard that this couple had just bought. It was covered with mildew. They really had no idea what they were doing. But she very memorably said, Oh God, we you know we they were living in California and they saw this vineyard for sale and she said, that's so Danielle Steele. <laughs> and so, so we made a wine from these grapes. It was awful, like not even we could drink it, but it came from the Danielle Steele vineyard. Um, and uh, I did you know I'm a designer, so I designed the labels. It's all it's all an elaborate excuse for me to design wine labels. So um, so. But then we got access. So, you know, we're reading books and trying to figure it out as we go along, um, asking questions of David Autry and Amy Wesselman, so generous with their time, uh, John Paul sometimes as well. Um, and, you know, other industry folks would sometimes give me some advice, and so that was great. But, you know, so much of it is about the quality of the grapes you start with. And so it was this terrible marriage of not great grapes and terrible winemakers. And those were dark early years. Um, but somehow we kept doing it. And after a while, you know, we, we just, we couldn't, after a while we got some uh, fruit from David and Amy at the Oracle Vineyard. And uh, still it wasn't, and that's good fruit, but we, just, we couldn't do it. And so, so at some point, we decided we, we just can't do Pinot Noir. So we started to go to Eastern Washington. And so most of our wines are from there. And gradually, we've ramped up uh, the quality of the vineyards that we work with. And uh, so now we're pulling from this amazing vineyard uh, in uh, Horse Heaven. And we do, well, so before the pandemic, we did 15 wines a year out of nine varietals. So obviously some were rosés, some were blends, and so on. And it was like a half-time job for me. Um, but we were always like, we couldn't say no. You know, Sangiovese, ooh, yeah, let's try that. Or Morvedra, one of my favorites. Um, so, you know, gradually, you know, we're, I'm trying to pay attention, uh, pay attention to the process, um, not make obvious dumb errors. Um, uh, and, and gradually our wines get better and better. Um, and, you know, I redid the, the labels in the mid-aughts. And now, what the wonderful thing, that, that people tell me, uh, you know, fairly frequently, is that they'll take one of our wines to a dinner, and they'll go, oh, this is some homemade wine, and everyone will go, oh, 
okay, we'll try it. And then they're blown away by how good it is. Now some of that, start with low expectations, works pretty well. Um, but uh, I did do, so at the, end of, at the end of my column, I put a personal ad in Willamette Week to start a wine group. And so I got a wine group uh, of various people from all around the city. And one of those, we did Bordeaux's. And so and we put them all in bags and tasted them. So you know about that process. And I put one of our blends in a bag too. And ours won. Now, kind of unfair because American wines are just, they're so different from European wines and they're more accessible and fruity. So that's sort of a hollow victory, but still, I was proud, I was proud. And, but I have to say, it was really like working with Kelly uh, Fox. Um, and I think, you know, I learned some tips and tricks from her, uh, for sure. But I think mostly what I learned from her was the focus and discipline, I guess, of just paying attention at every stage. And that's just made a huge difference. I mean, you know, you can make, it's super easy to make wine, you know, stick the grapes in something and come back a few weeks later and then drink it. I mean, I'm not gonna say it's gonna be good wine, but it's, still, it's not that complicated. But to be able to make it um, express something requires, does require some level of precision and watchfulness and, uh, and you know, paying attention all through the process. And that is like everyday process. And we didn't do that in the past. Um, so I'm like trying to pay attention every time, you know, every day we bring in new grapes, I'm tasting, I'm seeing how they're feeling, I'm starting to get a sense of what this one always smells like at this point, and is something wrong? And it helps this is all happening in my basement in Southeast Portland, so that I walk in to my house and I go, something's wrong, you know? Uh, and you know, most winemakers have to go, you know, to their winery to see that. Um, so uh, so um, that I think, so I think, you know, we, we make a pretty good bottle of wine. So we made, so then the pandemic happened and uh, we, you know, this is during the lockdown era. Wasn't really clear whether, you know, during that harvest, whether, um, you know, we'd get locked down and I'd have to make all of these wines myself. And so we cut back to just one wine. And, and it was so nice. <laughs> just, and then I could pay, really pay attention to each Now this was during the smoky year. So it was like, that was, aside from like the niceness of only have to think about one wine, it was like making wine in post-apocalyptic hellscape. You know, it was like, it was unpleasant. There's no camaraderie. We're all wearing masks because of smoke and COVID and very few of us. So everyone had to do more work to get it. It was just, un, it was just a manufacturing thing. So unpleasant. 
Um, and since then, you know, we've ramped back up a little bit. Um, and so also, so also, thanks to Kelly, I started to make Pinot Noir again. And I just, I just learned so much from her that I'm able to, you know, I'm never be as good a winemaker as she is, but I'm able to bring out some of that specificity, uh, some of that character in these grapes. And uh, uh, so we, we also do make Pinot Noir every now and then. But yeah, so, you know, I think um, to, you know, sum all that up, I don't know how much longer am I going to be able to do that. Uh, I'm 60 now, and uh, I like doing it, but it's kind of, it's a lot of work, and uh, it's a lot of lifting and hard labor. It's not that bad, but it is. And, you know, I'm drinking less. Uh, so, and, you know, there is something like, you know, we make all this wine, but then we have kind of a monoculture. And you're like, well, you know, we, we make wine because the labor's free. It comes in at about $7.35 with a cork and label in it. And, you know, that's pretty cheap. It's, it's good, cheap drinking. Uh, but that just, so, but, uh, but then you're like, all these other wonderful wines out in the world, it's, you know, you don't really see them. So I kind of miss that. Um, but at the same time, I love getting together and doing this with other people. So I don't know where we'll go from here. We thought about going pro a couple of times. Uh, I did all the research into it. And I remember talking with um, Andrew Rich, who's also given me some great <laughs> no-nonsense counsel over the years. And I was, I was like, oh, you know, he was like, why do you want to start you know, real winery. And I was like, oh, you know, it'd be kind of neat to kind of, you know, get it on shelves and, and, and in a restaurant. He says, and he said, is your ego really that desperate for approval? And I was like, hmm. <laughs> uh, that was like a good sort of um, and And so, that, you know, ultimately we, we, or I realized that I get to do all the fun parts of wine making and none of the crappy parts of wine making. And certainly all of the forms and the regulations and all that stuff, don't have to do any of that. Uh, but also, I mean, some winemakers enjoy the marketing, but I don't have to do any of that either. I don't have to fight for shelf space. I just get to do only the fun thing. And that means that only a handful of people know about the wines I make. But that's all right. I can live with it. <laughs> so I know you're you're not as as plugged into the industry and, and sort of the, the the happenings of it as you once were. But I'm curious, from your perspective and from being around it, what are the biggest changes you've you've sort of seen to the from the industry that you were kind of embedded in and to now and and what do you sort of see happening next for the Oregon wine industry? What are what are some things in the future? But it's hard to believe that the industry isn't going to hit a price and population problem. Um, it's just, you know, I know from working with Kelly that for many wineries, what they're charging 
is actually a reasonable price, though it doesn't seem like it from the outside. Of course, there's plenty of people who can jack it up to those prices because everyone else is doing it, for sure. But either way, you know, if you have a product, I remember Champagne has this problem too. I remember back in the day when I was covering it, if it's only a special occasion beverage, how can you make uh, an industry out of that? And so, again, you know, maybe it's that, that golden handcuff thing. They can still get people to buy that stuff, but for how much longer? And you know, you've got this accelerating thing of cost of labor, the cost of land, the cost of uh, marketing, you know, that make things just more and more expensive, especially for a, you know, a smaller uh, 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 a region of, there's some big wineries, but also lots of smaller wineries that have the economy of scale. And so I just, I, that's something's gonna have to come to a head. Some people are gonna have to, I don't know, go out of business. And I don't, that would be a shame. So I don't know, that just seems like that, that's kind of inevitable. And I hope somebody's thinking about and planning for it. Um, and I also, and you know, ultimately that the cultural generational shift. I hope somebody's trying to figure that out now too, or the wine industry's screwed. You know, I mean, you've, I remember, uh, I think, I'm not sure if Sokol Blosser would agree with this, but uh, when they released their Evolution series, um, that was, it was like this, what I remember, might be different now, what I remember was sort of like this sweet, easy drinking wine. And I didn't really care for it, but I thought they were smart to kind of start to make something a little more accessible to first time wine drinkers. Um, and, and, you know, they're, uh, I don't know what it costs now, but it was a reasonable price point too. Uh, so I thought that was super smart of them. And, you know, so maybe the, you know, every, every winery, even small ones, they have a range of price points for sure. But like some of them, they're still 35 bucks and up. And how do you, you know, the, so much of the wine industry is a hand sell. Um, you know, because wine industry can't afford to market an overall sustained branding uh, campaign. And so, so much of it is developing a personal connection with a specific winery. And that's all, just so much of it is done by hand. You get people to come out to your winery, meet them in wine shops, get people excited about your story so it isn't just like Pinot Noir A, Pinot Noir B, Pinot Noir C, what's the difference? It's like, oh, that one has a story and I like those people and I like what they're doing and I, they share my values or I really, you know, I love their plate, whatever, you make some sort of connection, but that's like all like, you know, uh, in the trenches work because, uh, you know, nobody can do like big blast advertising like the beer industry can do. So how do you make that connection with, you know, wine drinkers coming, potentially coming into the market who don't have that kind of money? You know, how do you do that? And maybe it is you've got sort of bridge, you know, maybe Underwood is like 
like that. I've, uh, um, my goddaughter, uh, she's 21, and I came over to dinner with her and her parents, and she was drinking Underwood. And I was like, okay, that's a start. Good for you. And I'm not saying Underwood's bad, but it's like super accessible. And it doesn't, it doesn't have the kind of thing about it. Um, and so maybe it's you know just making sure that the whole industry has this sort of tier where you've got like enough stuff in each area to lure people upwards. But still, I don't know, 35 bucks, a lot of money. I think it is, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of remember wondering if it was happening while I was doing the column and certainly since is I really, I love the spirit of the people who got into the industry and did it by their own bootstraps. You know, they started in the corner, well, they started like working a harvest and then, then they started like helping out in the cellar and then they, maybe they became an assistant winemaker and they made some wine in a corner so they could have the bonding. And, you know, just, and like that is sort of this test to me of someone who just simply loves it. And, you know, it's just uh, the, how much money it takes to get in the industry these days. I wonder if, you know, it's just harder and harder to do that kind of, be that kind of winemaker. Um, I know people still do it, but it's just, it must be so forbidding. And then, you know, let's say you're able to do it. God, where do you sell it? Like, how do you get shelf space? How do you get restaurant space? Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's tough. And so I really hope that that part of the industry can be supported somehow. I, I think it's still there, uh, but it just, that's, it's just the economics must be just more and more forbidding about that. Yeah. All right, last question for you is what comes next for you? What are, what's on your horizon that you're looking forward to? Projects in wine or outside? Mm. Um, I'm about to go to Portugal for a month, my girlfriend, and it will be the first time I've been away from work for 30 days, since college probably. And so, you know, I'm, I'm 60, my work life is starting to, you know, I'm getting there. And so this is a, it's kind of a natural bridge for me. Uh, what do I do next? Uh, and it's going to be important that I find another way to uh, the, my, ident my self identity is not anchored in work anymore because once I don't have work, I'm SOL. I'm just uh, staying on the phone all the time. So I'm hoping that this, you know, this vast journey that we're going to do, which is going to be so awesome, uh, is going to just clean out all the jets. You know, I'm trying, learn a I'm trying to learn Portuguese, which i got to say is fucked up language, but also wonderful too. And I'm just looking forward to like, if I can just communicate with, again, that's the communication piece. Like, can I communicate with, you know, by all accounts, wonderful people, and we'll visit a couple of the wine regions and hopefully get to talk to some winemakers. Uh, I always love doing that and learning what they're doing and what they're thinking about. 
Um, and then probably, uh, I, I think, I would, I'm gonna, what I'm thinking about doing is writing a book about home winemaking that's really about more than home winemaking. It's about, you know, getting people together and making something. Again, it's that preoccupation I mentioned a long time ago, which is what can I do in my super tiny way to remind people that people are worth knowing and spending time with and working together is the only way we're going to survive. Um, and I, I hope we still make wine. Uh, I love, you know, there's, I, I, driving out as fall begins out the gorge, uh, first thing in the morning, sun rising into your eyes. Uh, it's this wonderful ritual. Bring it, you know, we bring back the grapes. I somehow back it up the driveway, try not to scrape my neighbor's house. And then there are people there, and some, these, you know, a bunch of my, these people have been doing it for long enough. Everybody already knows what to do. So we're this great team, and people are already getting in the bins, pulling out leaves, and I'm tasting it, and trying to think about a whole cluster or not, or whatever. We're setting up the destemmer, and we have a, somebody rigged a chute down into my basement. So we set that up, and it goes down into the basement, and, and people are down at the bottom picking out the pips and any other leaves and stuff like that. And, and everyone has a job, we're doing this together, and then we finish it, we clean it all up, and we drink and eat. And we do that every harvest and every bottling. And I don't know, I can't imagine what could be better than that, really. Uh, got to know some of the wineries or some of the vineyards out there and the people. It's just it's a great life, really. And, and, you know, even with great prices going up and up, if you don't have to pay for labor, it's still pretty cheap. So, I don't know, I guess that's, <laughs> who knows what's next for me? Oh, maybe I'll just stay in Portugal. You can make wine there. Could, yeah, indeed. <laughs> well, it's all the questions that I have for okay. you. Thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your stories with us and sharing some good humor with us today. Appreciate you coming out, and I will let you off the hook. All right, thanks Thank for your you. time. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.